is Terry Bradshaw, quarterback, Pittsburgh Steelers. Touched by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time. And it's ABC's Monday Night Baseball, live from Fenway Park in Boston, Massachusetts. He's fading, looking, looking, looking. He's under the gun. He's fired, he throws. Major League Baseball. And this is Mel Allen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Past Our Prime podcast. Uh, my name is Scott Johnston. That is... Bill Mahoney. And that is... I thought you were Bill Hoffman. Bill Mahoney Hoffman. Sorry. Okay. I, I, I'm Mark Hoffman Mahoney. Nice. Nice. Now that we got that um, straightened out, boy, we're going to ride that one, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> that joke never, never, never let you die, forget that. Man. That joke's never going to die. Um, we are looking back this week at the February 18th, 1974 issue of SI, John Havlicek and the Celtics on the cover. Um... But real quickly, wanted to just say, you know, what this podcast is about, what we do here, and um, growing up on box scores, the game of the week, and Sports Illustrated, um, Bill, Mark, and I, three longtime sports TV producers, we reflect back on the world of sports through the lens of old issues of SI from 50 years ago. Larry Zonka and the Dolphins, Reggie Jackson and the Swingin' A's, the Wizard of Westwood, the Golden Bear, Muhammad Ali, just a few of the many heroes that we'll showcase weekly here on the Past Our Prime podcast. So stay up to date on what happened in the past as we go back in time and return to the glory days of sports week by week, issue by issue of Sports Illustrated. We started this back January 7th, 1974, and here we are now, six weeks later, middle of winter, 1974. So with that, let's get right to this week's issue, and we will start with Mark. What you got? I like the scorecard. There's a bunch of things here. Uh, one was uh, Moorhead State's head coach decided he had a more important game down the road, so he sat his six top players, and they made a 400-mile trip to go play Illinois State without their top six players, and they were the better team. But without them, they lost like by 39 points, and, and the Illinois State athletic director was so upset. He said, this is a hoax on our team, our coaching staff, our fans. That man should not be coaching, and I told him so. You know, the funny thing is, is yeah, they, they lost um, by 41 points to Illinois State. Basically, what this coach did is called load management. <laughs> That's exactly what he did. He didn't want his players playing two non-conference games mm-hmm. and having to do a, a 800 round-trip bus trip, so he had them stay home. And um, that's you what know, Popovich did. That's that's yes. what all the coaches yeah. did Man, until the NBA that. said, yeah. you know, can't do that anymore. Though Popovich never say, he might have sat as top three players, but never a top six players. I mean, you know, then you're dealing with a G League team there. Right, right, Billy. I think I have one. So I can get back to it. I think there was one where the um, ABA it said an ABA player's boycotted a luncheon because gifts weren't placed in their room. And I thought, I thought, boy, you're gonna boycott just something, and it was for the fans as well. Like fans went, tickets were like ten bucks, and the players said no because there were no gifts. And I thought, even then, there were people out there, athletes that said, "Yeah, I don't get what I want. You're not getting what you want." Mm, yeah, they've 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 kind of perfected that these days. Yes, they have. <laughs> yes, they have. You got another mark. Yeah, I love Stan Musial. They had a quote from him, and he was talking about how much he enjoys being with baseball and the Cardinals. He says, I have a darn good job with the Cardinals, but please don't ask me what I do. (laughs) (laughs) He's an ambassador for the game. Yes, exactly. Stan the man. He wouldn't have to do anything. Right. You know, that you could ask me. Yes, exactly. I'm Stan Musial. I, I do what I want. I think he was a spy, and that's his cover job. 
because uh, remember there's an old TV show, show called I Spy, mm -hmm. and the guy was a tennis player, but that was his cover. Right. He was actually, you know, a spy and stuff. And I firmly believe Greg, that's with Greg Popovich, because Popovich, you know, has this Air Force background, his intelligence background, and he's making these trips to Europe to, quote, scout international players. My theory has always been that, that Popovich is actually a spy for yeah. the United States. Yeah. Go with that. I will. Yeah. <laughs> that gets us to our cover story, which is John Havlicek of the Celtics on the cover. And um, the article says the sledding was tough. It's the middle of winter. <laughs> the Celtics um, started that season 29-6, and six, and they have a four-game set. And this is when you know that the Celtics were just a great, great team because in that week they go 2-2. Two and two. Um <laughs> They lose on a 25-footer by Bob Weiss at the buzzer. Uh, the Bulls beat them. Then they fly to Milwaukee. They uh, actually beat the, the Bucks um, and, and Abdul-Jabbar, 105-104. Uh, come home, get blown out by the Knicks, and then go back and play the Bucks again. This time Kareem gets 28-21, beats them 95-86. But a 2-2 two two week just shows you how dominant of a team they were. Well, yeah, they said that they were 29-6 in the 1973 portion of the season, and then they started 74-8-7. So people are complaining. That means the team's 37-13. and 13. How right. many teams would love to be 37-13? and 13? Right, right. But they're coming off a 68-14 and 14 season the year prior, and everyone's thinking, oh, we're hanging a banner, and they lose in the playoffs. So everyone was kind of like going, oh, here we go again. But it just goes to show you that uh, they didn't have enough faith because they would get to the NBA Finals, Winning in seven games with Havlicek being the series MVP. Over Kareem and uh, yeah. the Milwaukee Bucks. Yeah. Right. But it just shows you how spoiled they were. Because it just said they got off to a rough start at the beginning of the new year. They were 39 and 15. I mean, that's, I mean, many, many teams would uh, like to have a rough year starting off 39 and 15. They were just, just a great team. If you want to know what that team was like and Havlicek and yep. Cowan's, yep then there is just one man to talk with, and that is legendary Globe writer Bob Ryan, author of just too many books to mention all of them, <laughs> if we're being honest. Here's three of what I think are 14, but he may have written another one in the last half hour or something like that. So he wrote Hondo, Celtic Man in Motion, co-authored that with John Havlicek, mm -hmm. Cousy on the Celtic Mystique, co-authored with Bob Cousy, and Drive, the story of my life, written with Larry Bird. Is there a Celtic that didn't write a book is my, is my first question. Bill Simmons calls him the greatest basketball writer ever. I don't know if he is the greatest, but I don't know anyone who is better. Bob, thanks for joining us on the Past Our Prime podcast. Well, I appreciate that very much. And there was one other Celtic-oriented book called Celtic Pride, which I wrote in 1974 after they won that first uh, post-Russell championship talking about the whole rebuilding of the team after Russell and Sam Jones had left. So that was my uh, my first actual book specifically on the Celtics. And that is a perfect segue for what we're about to talk about. So <laughs> chapter and verse, I, uh, I expect some, some quotes. Um, um, but let's start with that team and Havlicek in particular because I was five years old when this issue of Sports Illustrated came out. So I don't think I ever saw... Hondo play. What kind of player was he? And is there anyone now that is somewhat similar to what he did? How good was he? Yeah, well, how good he was is that for a period of time from roughly 1969 until 73 or 4, he was the best player in the league, below center. That's when the world was very different. And, and the, the, there were big pivot men ruled the world. Uh, they went, it was a 20 year period when only one non center won the MVP. He never did win an MVP, nor did Jerry West, by the way, nor did Elgin Baylor. And that's all because it was dominated by centers in that period of time. But if you're talking about all-around player, offense, defense, all facets of offense uh, and defense, he was the best player in the league. At that point, both Oscar and Jerry were declining. And they were still great, but they had passed, peaked, and John was at his peak. Um, so, um, first of all, he's a he, – Fainted with dame, dame, damned with faint praise to refer to him as a great six man only because, yes, he was the best 
classic sixth man in NBA history when he was a sixth man, which was a luxury only the Celtics or a team at that level could afford. Okay, and we bring him off the bench. Fact of the matter is that starting with his second year with the team in 1963-64, he was second on the team in minutes played after Russell. He was finishing games. Red, Red was a believer in that. So it was a luxury Red could afford. And then when Russell retired, Heinsohn, of course, had no option but to start him. And, and, and he became a starter and, 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 and led the league in minutes played three times at least. Okay. So, I mean, he was, his endurance was legendary, truly legendary. Uh, he didn't get tired. Uh, he, when, while the other team was resting their star in the second quarter, John was, was playing, playing his game and, and John was averaging in the, over 40 minutes a game for a number of years in a row. Um, he also broadened his game when he first came into the league as a rookie. He was a defensive-oriented player who ran up and down the floor and, as he would tell you, catch passes from Koozie and make layups. And he was a fair shooter. He went home and worked on his shot that summer of 63 and came back and averaged 19 points a game the second year, starting to make a lot more jump shots. And he became a very efficient shooter. He was a great all-around scorer, great to the basket, great finisher. And then the next thing he did was work on his ball handling and his, his playmaking ability. Uh, and and he, took, he casually took over being a surrogate point guard as time went on. He was always a great defensive player. He's noted for moving without the ball. That's his famous thing. And, and he did. He ran more miles than anybody. But he was also good as he got made himself, as all great players do, they get better because they work on their deficiencies. And John worked on his. So the, by about his fifth or sixth year, he had mastered this game. I'm so glad uh, that you mentioned. So there's, I'm so there's, there's a, a capsule summary yeah, of what John Howard was and, and I was going to say, I'm so glad you mentioned the sixth man. Cause I find that to be such a misnomer because who the heck cares who starts the game? What matters is who are the five guys that finish the games. <laughs> and so, well, you know, cause Kurt Rambis started for the Lakers yeah. and you know, but he didn't finish most of those games. Yeah. Now, it was a, you know, six man, the Celtics had the first great six man was Frank Ramsey. And uh, he mentored John. John was, he was still playing when John was a rookie. And and this is funny how the game has changed in, you know, in so many ways. But John said one of the tips that he gave him was make, don't sit in your warm up jacket, have it around your shoulders. So when they tell you to go in, you can get in the game faster. Hmm. Uh, it's things like that. <laughs> but he taught, but he also tutored him in, in, in other things. Um, but the, he, he got, he learned how to, the, and, and adopted the mentality of it from, from Frank Ramsey. Um, and, and he became, you know, renowned for, for his being a sixth man. And that's fine. But the point, I just don't want people to think of him only in those terms, because then you would have a hard time convincing them that any that he was actually as good as or even better at the time than Oscar Robertson or Jerry West, who were the two supreme players of that size. Right, right. So the, the team of their glory years wins all these titles, the last one in 69, and then Russell retires in that group. The five years between titles, did that seem like a lifetime to Boston fans because they were so used to success? Oh, they were spoiled, I guess, to a degree. But the, but the thing is, they had immediate – there was one one bridge year. The first year after Russell and Sam, they were 34 and 48. Tom Heinsohn was a rookie coach. He was OJT from day one. He had never coached anything in his life, not a youth league, nothing. Uh, Red made him the coach because he was a bright guy and and, and all that, a very smart basketball man, but, but he had never coached. He was learning his job as well. And he was coaching some guys he had been teammates with. And that's always very tricky when you have to start giving orders, including Havlicek, who had been a roommate and at one point. But he's coaching guys that he played with, uh, like Satch Sanders and, and Larry Siegfried. And, and uh, things didn't always go great with some of those guys. Particularly Siggy was a little headstrong. But anyway, so that they – but little remembered by that year is that they – that's the year of the Knicks – 6970 the great Knicks team that that I think is the most single important team in the history of the uh, history of the league in terms of focusing public attention on the NBA more than the Celtics were able to do because it was in New York anyway they won the season series they beat the Knicks that year 4 to 3 people don't realize that it was just a nice little uh, you know little feather in their cap um, then they make a fateful they have a fateful draft day in 1970 uh, they're finished they, they're picking fourth and and uh, Red picks Dave Cowens out of Florida State. Not a lot of people were aware of, of Dave Cowens because Florida State never played a tournament game at his time. They never made the tournament. And uh, and they, people weren't really paying great attention to Florida State. They had yet to join the uh, ACC. Um, you know, they weren't on the in the forefront of people's minds of basketball. And so he had to show the world who he was. 
uh, but Cowens was the, the, the central uh, transformative figure that, that helped tie this, you know, set the tone for what was going to happen in the next several years with this team. They go and they win 44 games that year. They don't make the playoffs, make the playoffs, but they did have a 10 game winning streak at one point in, in December uh, that, that got people's attention. 77, 172, they, they make the playoffs for the first time post Russell, but, uh, and, and they lose, uh, they lose to the Knicks. And then the big trade was made uh, that, that turned everything around. And that was Paul Silas. He was the missing link. Mm. And, and, uh, they, and they needed a guy. He was the anti-DeBusher. Dave DeBusher was the guy that was tormenting them. Not Frazier, not Reed. I mean, they were great players. But DeBusher was the guy they couldn't handle. Well, Silas turned out to be the DeBusher uh, kryptonite. And uh, that, that tied the team together. And the next year, they went 68 games. And, and they lose in the playoffs because Havlicek got hurt in game two, missed all of game three, and, and played with a left hand only in games uh, uh, five and six, and, and pretty much all exclusively left-handed. And they finally lose in game seven at home to the Knicks. But, um, and, but so now that they're ready for the next year. They do go on and they win the championship. We're going to have the 50th anniversary of a really memorable finals against the Bucks, mm-hmm. in which – there were five road victories, including the last four of, of that series. You, you seldom see a series like that. We're getting quickly why Bill Simmons referred to you as the greatest basketball yes. writer ever, because uh, you talk about this stuff like it happened last week. It's very, very impressive. Uh, Mark mentioned briefly, um, but I was in Boston for the last 17 years, just recently moved back home. You know, since in that time, the Red Sox won four championships, of course, the Patriots and their run. So Boston does have this kind of sense of win or else. But really, (laughs) as Mark mentioned, that started back with the Celtics, didn't it? It, These playoff teams, I'm sure, were well-received, but it was all about winning and hanging banners. It wasn't to the extent that it is today because this predates talk radio. And, and talking hits on TV and the manufacturing of issues so you can have airtime and, and justify your presence. And that the world, that world that I started out in in 1969 didn't exist then. You just took things at face value and, and you didn't manufacture issues. You didn't manufacture uh, uh, something. Yeah. So that kind of dialogue it was not existing then. No, it, it, that that's a product of the, of, you know, well, WFAN come in the year in 79 uh, and, and television talk shows started uh, pioneered by the sports writers on TV in Chicago. If you remember them, mm-hmm. the smoke filled room, they were, they were the great grandfather of all the TV talk shows that exist today, including PTI and around the horn and, and anything on Fox and CBS and anywhere else. No, that it, the people were okay with the world as it was. It's it, now they get riled up artificially by, you know, by the, by the, uh, the, TV and radio talent. That's a great perspective. Is is Boston though the best sports town in America? Oh. And and I know oh. people in LA will take offense, but the reason I mention it is there's a uniqueness to Boston. There is no baseball stadium like Fenway Park. There is no basketball stadium that is parquet floor like the Celtics have. It's a uniqueness the city has in addition to its champions. Uh, the topic is eternal. It, it, it was really first broached by Frank DeFord at Sports Illustrated a number of, you know, 35 years ago, maybe, about the best sports town and the hub and all that. Um, I'm an outsider. I, 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 you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I, I, I went to school at Boston College and I'm still in Boston as a result. I've never left. But so I, I have the perspective of an outsider. Um, like my, my daughter has the DNA. You know, I don't have that I, uh, of the Boston sports fan. It is a conceit that has been fed to the Boston sports fans that they are the greatest, that this is the greatest sports town. I don't think there's such a thing. I don't think anybody can lay claim to being the best sports town. Our, we're the luckiest sports town in the 21st century because of the championships, which we have nothing to do with naturally. You know, the, the players have to play, and we are very fortunate. We can talk about that. But our big hole in the sports soul is college. I don't think you can lay claim to being the best sports town if you're exclusively pro or exclusively college. Um, and and we, we don't have the, the collegiate, the, the college sports passion that other areas have had. Uh, I, I'll say that. I wish we did because I love college basketball particularly. Although we can have a whole other discussion about the, the hell in the handbasket ruin of college sports right now with the NIL and the portal mm-hmm. and all the stuff mm-hmm. that's going on. Mm-hmm. That'll never, it'll never be the same again. No. But it's a vibrant sports town um, and, and uh, for sure. 
but uh, it, it, it does have a big hole in the sports soul and in college. Yeah, Matty Ryan and the, and the BC Eagles were number one, I believe, for a, a blip. And that's, yeah, they were. that's what it was, a blip, because nobody covered it. Well, the uh, only you know. time it's been different in my experience was the Flutie era. And we're 40 years removed now yeah. from the Hail Mary pass of yeah. Gerald Phelan and, and, and uh, now in 1984. But the Flutie era, the town was alive with college sports. They sold out the old uh, Fox, Foxborough Stadium for, for, road game, for games, believe it or not, 60,000 60, uh, at times. They, they were able to transfer their games out of the heights of B.C., um, that was, the, but that was, you know, well, I w- actually the only, the only other time you were a college sports fan in the late forties when Harry Aganis was at Boston university. So we've had these two blips on the radar screen, but that's it. It's not lasting. You know, if uh, the number one college sport, uh, in, in this town is hockey. Mm-hmm. And, and right now, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, oh, you probably do last weekend, BC and BU were number one and number two and had a, a weekend home and home, which BC won. And then BU turned the tables on them at the bean pot last mm-hmm. Monday night and beat them in the first round of the bean pot. But uh, it, this has always been a good college hockey town uh, for, for those who love hockey. Let me ask, I got, I got to take you back because this to me is, is, is a childhood dream. You graduate college and then the next year you're the Celtics beat reporter. <laughs> how did you, yeah. how, how was that for you? What was that feeling like? It was well. Uh, the, the fact that's a, you know, it sounds like a made-up story, but it's a gospel truth. I watched the 1969 finals uh, in the stands, not a, for a couple of freebie tickets that the Globe had. Okay, I was. Uh, I I heard the chronology. I graduated in '68. I'm a. I'm a I, be, I got and become a summer intern. I graduated June 3rd, 1968, and on June 10th, I started at the Globe as a summer intern. I had got a chance. I got an offer, uh, interview, and I made it into the uh, made the cut. I met a guy named Peter Gammons from North Carolina on my very first day in the job. And uh, we became good friends. Yeah, you might have. Um, So we were were fellow interns and we spent a lot of time together for the next several years. Um, Okay. Um, I I, I am in the Army Reserves. This is the height of Vietnam. I had gotten into the reserves and I had to go on my active duty. And I went from uh, October of 68 until February of 69 at Fort Knox. And when I came out, they uh, rehired me back as an office boy with a verbal promise of the next opening on the staff whenever that would come. This was in uh, uh, June of 68, and it came in October. Okay, so uh, they, it, this, I'm sitting in mind my own business in the office one day in, in October on a Wednesday, I believe it was, and the boss comes down and says, I got good news for you. Uh, this and that's happened, you're gonna be on the staff. And oh, by the way, you're covering the Celtics Friday night. <laughs> Bob Sales had covered the Celtics for like five or six years, and he had left. One of the reason I got that the opening was he would left sports to go to news, and created a vacancy, and they gave me that vacancy. But he had been the Celtic beat guy, and they had no heir apparent. They just didn't. They had no heir apparent. They said, "Well, the kid likes basketball. We'll give him a shot," you know, kind of thing. And and actually, Peter Gammons and I split the first like six home games. We weren't even traveling yet in those days, and uh, routinely. But I got the beat after it settled in after about a month. And I was a 23-year-old beat man. And my orientation had been college. I mean, I followed the NBA to a degree. And I, I went to love, but, but I has, was not uh, passionate about the NBA. And I, and I didn't know about the nuances of NBA basketball, which I had to learn. from. And, and I had mentors. And the mentors were named Havlicek and Sanders and Nelson and also Heinsohn. And, and uh, they took me in. They, they all did. They, 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 uh, and gave me, you know, I, I've. Of course, it was to our advantage to have the representative of the most important media outlet in New England on, you know, covering them. That was, and that was the Boston Globe. But I mean, it was it was surreal. I mean, I really I was six months removed in May of May 5th, 19 uh, May of 1969. I'm in the stands and on October 69, I'm covering opening night. Bob, I mean, that's a, it, that's that's fictional. And did you go for dinner with the team? You would like, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I, that's what you did. I went I went to dinner, lunch. Uh, closed bars for years with them. I mean, you know, that's what you did. And and uh, I'd go up to them after a game on the road. All right, where are we going? And because the day, oh, there's always somewhere they were going to go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and we would go and, uh, and and close the joint up very often. Sure. Bob, you're 23. How are you not intimidated by them at this stage of your life? Because they didn't try to intimidate me. And I think about, I was the same age as the young guys and not that much younger than the middle guys, the middle guys being Havlicek and, and Nelly, 
uh, who were then, uh, they would have been 27, okay? And, and uh, 28, 29, and I'm 23, but I was the same age as Steve Kaberski and Don Chaney and Jojo White and Cowens. I'm a year older, I'm two years older than Cowens. And when he came, I adopted him. I mean, he, he's the most fascinating figure I've ever covered, and really was. And uh, um, it, it, socially, it was easy. It was no problem at all. And, and you know, the tribute to them, you know? Yeah. And, but I was enthusiastic. I, was, I wanted to learn stuff. And, and, and I brought something to the table. I, I, I did my homework. I knew who they were. I knew where they went to high school, you know? Uh, I, I knew that kind of stuff. And, and I got to know their wives' names, the kids' names, what car they drove. You know, I mean, that it, I was part of the part of the package. I was just going to ask you, I know you had a personal relationship with a lot of these players and guys like Havlicek. He's obviously one of the top Celtics of all time. You knew him personally. What kind of person was John Havlicek for people that may have never seen him play? Organized. He was organized in everything he did. He was, he was precise, meticulous, uh, a neat freak. His locker was hilarious. His locker. He used to wear, if you were wearing like what we call executive socks, you know, really relatively high knee socks, um, he would hang them over a hanger in the locker room. <laughs> and he had these cologne bottles and stuff and, you know, shaving cream and all that. And he arranged them in ascending order of height. His locker room looked like the general was coming for inspection. And uh, I remember one night we were having, we were, I was eating with him and, and uh, we had steak and I ate, uh, ate a little of the fat. And he looked at me and said, you'd eat that? You know, and, you know, I mean, he was, the world was logical. Everything seemed logical. It was like basketball. He, he, he understood it. And, and, and what seemed logical and, and, and predictable to him wasn't always that evident to the younger players. It took him a while to, to uh, get uh, accommodated with, with the young guys on that team uh, on the court because he saw things that they didn't see and, 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 and saw them quicker. But, um, oh, John was, but he was very gracious. And I always say this. Uh, he was as gracious to the high school kid coming in with a tape recorder uh, to interview him as he was to a, a nationally syndicated columnist. If Jim Murray showed up or Milton Gross or somebody, uh, he, he was an unfailingly polite. He's a gentleman, you know, on off, off the court. And uh, um, and, and I, I got to, the longer he was around, the, le the less inhibited in the sense he was. By the time he retired. Um, he was one of my uh, a fun person to be around. I wouldn't have said that in the beginning. He was a, uh, he was a, a, a nice person to be around, but he actually became fun. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I'm very fond of John. And of course I was privileged to do the, the, the one and only book about John with, uh, uh Hondo. And uh, so that, that, that was important to me. That was my first as told to book. Yeah. It sounds like the way you mentioned he, he in the off season would improve on what he saw was a weakness. And then the way you mentioned his locker, would he be described as a perfectionist? Oh yeah, I would think so. Yeah. That's actually, yes. And um, it, it, he, 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 he was smart enough about himself to know he wouldn't going to be, he didn't want to coach. And I think the reason he didn't want to coach was that, he knew he would be impatient with with the uh, anybody that didn't get it, you know, the, or or anybody that had a slovenly work habit. I think he would have. I think he would not have enjoyed it, and would not have, have been able to reconcile himself to that. And he knows that they were they're going to be out there, and every team's going to have somebody. And um, it, it, so he never coached. Uh, although obviously intellectually he he would have been a tremendous coach, but but he knew that about himself. He understood himself very well. That's why West didn't coach or didn't like coaching. Uh, yeah, for the same, West, same kind of yeah, West was right. He was. Oh, I could. You want a West story? I gave West. Oh story. yeah. So uh, I'm in, I'm in L.A. I don't know what, what the purpose was at this particular point in time when he was coaching, and and uh, he's coaching and Lou Hudson's on the team. And of course, he had been a great player. But it was over for Lou Hudson by the time he got to L.A. And and Wes says to me, we're in the forum, he says to me, Lou Hudson, Lou Hudson. He said, if we're a horse, I'd have to take him out and shoot him. <laughs> so that, that was Jerry West as a coach. John didn't want to get to that stage. <laughs> so, so it wasn't quite the motivational speaker yeah. that, That's right. uh, that uh, they have coaches these days. You know, you were legendary for going after the coaches. You were not easy you were you, despite being friends with a lot of these guys you wrote it the way you saw it um what was your relationship and how did it evolve with tommy heinson well it devolved it started out great as i told you in the beginning we used to have coffee 
on the road and together uh, and, and, and talk about stuff and everything. And, and, and uh, it was going great. And, 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 and he'd tell me good stories about the old days and the whole thing. And it was great. Uh, but in time went on, I was also, you know, hanging out with the players all the time. And the, the first issue was Jojo White. And the, the veterans were a little bit disenchanted uh, at, at a certain point in time with Jojo. Uh, they, they felt uh, was not working hard enough on defense and didn't box out. That drove him crazy. And, and they, when they switched and he got caught with a big guy uh, maybe on the boards, he wouldn't box out. Whereas Hambone Williams, they said, was a tiger. He would box out. Okay. Well, I, I forget exactly what the specific was, but there was a thing with JoJo came up, and I basically reflected and print, print the opinion of, of the players without naming names uh, over what Heinsohn was saying. Tommy didn't like it, and it started, you know, him a little bit and going off, and to the point where not once, but at least twice and maybe three times, he, he, he told the team at various gatherings not to talk to me. Mm. And, and after one of those sessions – which because they told me about it. And one of those sessions, and we laughed at him, you know, not on his face, but right. behind his back. And uh, he said, he's not your friend, blah, 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 you know, well, you know. And, and one time, uh, one of the players came to me, basically with the minutes of the meeting, about 10 minutes after it was over, to say, he did it again. You know, told you, he told us not to talk to you. Um, it, so we went up and uh, last couple of, this, this last couple of years weren't really good between he and me, myself. And the last year in, in 75, 76, um, we, we get to the finals and things aren't going well at all. And after game one, uh, I wrote a, uh, he, he was fuming about something. And I wrote a column in which I said that he was like a spoiled brat whose father took away the car keys. And he didn't like that line, uh, you know. And uh, He didn't? That's so much. No. Stop. I don't understand why. That's a good line. <laughs> well, so he's so basically like not – I'm, I'm covering for the Boston Globe, but we, he's basically – He's not not talking to me, but he's not not talking to me. I mean, he's not talking to me in this sense. You know, in a group he had to, right. but not one-on-one. So anyway, when we got to Phoenix for game three and four, I stayed at Paul Westfall's house. A story people don't believe, but it's true. But instead of the hotel, I, Westfall had become a very good friend. And I was, when he was with the Red Sox, with, with the Celtics, I stayed at his house and, 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 and the two times of the Phoenix trips, games three and four and six, and rather than with, at the hotel. So now they go on, they win the championship and they're in the locker room getting the champagne poured around at game six. And I went up to him and I said, uh, congratulations and shook his hand and he shook my hand. And that was that. Now I get off the beat. Another story. I get off the beat. And two years later, there's a, a so I'm not around them for basically for two years. Two years later, there's a testimonial for his old college room, uh, his Celtic roommate, Jim Luskatov. And I'm at the thing too. And I go up to him at the bar. I say, Tommy, would it spoil your evening if I say hello? <laughs> no, that's okay. And that was in 1976 until the day he died, which was only two years ago. We were friendly. Yeah. And he did interviews for me. Did lots. It was over. Like, it never happened. We never talked about it. We just went on. I'd go in the press room, cover a game. Hey, Bobby. And he was one of the, he always called me Bobby. A couple of people. He's my other than my mother. And uh, he called me Bobby. And uh, we got along fine. It was like never. it never happened. But, but it was painful. I, and I, one of the reasons I got off the beat was I just couldn't see having a year of conflict with him. It wasn't going to serve anybody well. It wasn't going to serve the readers well. I didn't want the stress, and 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 he didn't need the aggravation. So I got out, I got out of the way. What that seventy three seventy four team? Where do you rank that on the hierarchy of Boston championship teams? Well, you know we know they were better the year before. You know when they won the sixty eight, and actually that team they they had a great start. As I recall, they were thirty wins, seven losses. They're cruising, and then they went into cruise gear the second half of the year. They kind of coasted home. They and, and so when they entered the playoffs, uh, there was a bit of uncertainty in '74. Um, and then they have a great opening series with Buffalo, who were you know a, a terrific rival for a three-year period there. And uh, McAdoo, um, yeah, yeah, and Ernie D, yeah. and Randy yeah. Smith. Yep, I was Ernie D's great rookie year. You know when before he got hurt, he he led the league in assistant free throw shooting, and um, Ernie D was. The closest thing to Koozie that you know ever, you know that that Celtics ever had. Anyway, it was only for one, you know when he got to the Celtics later on. Anyway, uh, they had a team. Uh, they weren't prohibitive favorites or anything. Milwaukee was the prohibitive prohibitive favorite, mm -hmm. but they had bad luck. 
Lucius Allen slipped on a warm-up jacket on <laughs> laid mistakenly on the sideline in the Seattle series, tore his knee up, and he was out for the rest of the playoffs. Now, he was the starting guard next to Oscar. In the game one of the finals, John McLaughlin got hurt. So now they're down two guards, and Mickey Davis, who was a forward, you know, and of no great renown, has to become the starting guard. But Oscar was 34, and he was he was starting to go. He, he didn't have the stamina he once had. Kareem carried them. Mm-hmm. He averaged, I got the numbers on him today. I, he averaged like 35 and, and 13 <laughs> for the whole series. He carried wow. them completely. There would, there's no way the thing goes more than five if Kareem doesn't play at his, out of his mind. He was so good. But uh, so I have to go. I forgot the question. Oh, yeah. Right. So, yeah, the, the Milwaukee had, they were the favorites. And yet, even without those two guys, they were able to go seven games in a, a very odd series in which there were five road victories, including the last four games were each won by the road team. How about that? Yeah. Cowan's really, even though Kareem was Kareem, but Cowan's really made him work, mm-hmm. didn't he? Yes, he did. And Kareem, Kareem respected Dave uh, because Dave was rough, as, but not dirty. Uh, and he and he always got stuck guarding him, giving up six inches until game seven. And there was a famous conclave after game six, which the Celtics lose at home in that spectacular double overtime mm-hmm. when Kareem makes the, the hook shot to win the game from the corner, one of the most famous single shots in the history of the NBA. And, and, Apparently, uh, Kuzi and, and, and was brainstorming with uh, Heinsohn and, and John Killalay, the assistant coach, and they said, got, decided for the first time in their relationship covering, uh, you know, playing against Kareem, they're going to double team. They're going to swim him. They're not going to lift Cowens. They're going to make they're going to make Curtis Perry or Cornell Warner beat him. In other words, you know, mm-hmm. not Kareem. It- and in the middle of that game, which Cowens started off hot and, and had a great first half. There was like a 17 or 18 minute period when Kareem went scoreless in the middle of the game, in the middle of the second, the middle of the third, during which time the Celtics built up a 17 point lead, which they really held on to and win and win the game. So uh, uh, I, full props to Kareem for, for making that a, a really, uh, you know, competitive, wonderful series. Bob, in all your times with the Celtics, do you have a specific one that is your favorite team and why? Oh, we haven't mentioned, you know, Larry. Exactly. <laughs> think that's where I'm going. I mean, well, yeah, I'm Larry, going. Larry's too young for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 if there's a Bob Ryan out there, you know, with, with my enthusiasm and, 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 and historical, you know, equivalence and all that, uh, who uh, I would wish, I would wish on them something good. It would be to uh, have a chance to cover the 1985, 86 Celtics, from January to the rest of the season. They hit their stride in January and played some of the most exquisite basketball that has ever been seen on this planet. And they are the best team of all time in the pre three point shot mania era. And boy, would I love to see them against the Warriors at their prime, but to see whose game would prevail because it's a totally different game of basketball now due to the, the preponderance of the three and lack of inside play. Greatest front court of all time, unarguably. And their great trump card in, in any all-time discussion is the nature of their sixth man. Bill Walton that year gave them a, a, a d- dimension no team has ever had and never will have, and that is bringing a man off the bench to change the game at that in, in that manner. There are another six men. Havlicek's leading off with the, with the pack. But nobody changed the game and, and affected the game coming off the bench the way Bill Walton did. And also in conjunction with, with uh, that year in conjunction with Robert Parrish, the greatest one, two center punch in the history of the league. Unarguably, nobody can look you in a straight face and, and give you an alternative. Nobody had a one, two center punch in the history of the league like that. That team, when they, when they were playing well, was, was basketball artistry period. Would you agree, though, that L.A. and Boston were the biggest rivals? I mean, New York obviously will have an argument, but just the, what they went through in the 60s and then with Bird and Magic in the 80s. And I remember yeah. Bird and Magic, even when they were tired, Magic had a golf tournament once. He didn't play golf. Larry was playing in the tournament. So I talked to Larry, and he goes, you tell Magic to get out on the green, even though they're retired now, and I want to I want play golf against me. So I go back to Magic and say, hey, Larry wants to challenge you. And he looks at me and he says, to what? To golf. Oh, golf. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so this competitive. Not, um, yeah, the, the three great rivalries in the last 
uh, 60 years with the Celtics, for the Celtics, the Lakers, uh, the 76ers, the Warriors slash 76ers, that, that, the, that early 80s against with the 76ers, it was a terrific rivalry. And of course, the Knicks from 69 to 74, it was a great rivalry with the had a, had a special flavor uh, that was the, that was special because of the all the New York college kids that could come to the games in Boston and, and, and make it like a college game. Okay. Uh, Bird and Magic, it's no myth. I'm here to tell you, tell you guys a little scoop here. Um, there's there's going to be a Larry Bird Museum in Terre Haute opening late in the spring. And uh, I'm part of helping plan for it by interviewing people. I'm one of the people who are interviewing people for audio, audio tributes that are going to be made to Larry by everybody from teammates to coaches to opponents and and. You can guess who's front and center in the opponent thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I interviewed him two weeks last two weeks ago, Larry, Magic, and and his he just sparkles talking about Larry and the relationship mm. and how far back they go, and they are personal friends and they do care about each other and they do they are in frequent communication, and and it, it's 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 a really touching thing, frankly, and um, they so yeah, it's all true that Laker rivalry. I mean, Magic said. He would, when the schedule came out, circle those mm-hmm. games. Make those games were absolutely special, and and Larry would tell you the same thing. No load management, then they wouldn't be sitting out those games. Oh, oh my God, <laughs> it, it, what a joke! You know, um, they can't even conceive of anything like that. You know, I mean, just not even <laughs> comprehensive. Can't conceive of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we we do a segment here called Fifty Fifty. It's a trivia question I throw out from 50 years ago, 1974. You get a 50-50 chance to get it. And this one is <laughs> going to be easy because it's a very subjective answer. There is really no right or wrong answer. So 50 years ago, a movie comes out called The Conversation, one of the most underrated movies starring Gene Hackman. The mm-hmm. second lead in that movie is an actor named John Cassell. Mm-hmm. Is he the greatest actor to ever come out of Boston? With due respects to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and those people. I'm trying to think because I, there's this one of the old timers, at least one of the old timers, uh, uh, you know, was come. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think it's from Boston. I can't contradict it. Mm. And I, 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 I'm, I think there's got to be somebody very obvious that I'm forgetting, uh, you know, Boston itself. I'm trying to think. Huh. There's no say, wrong answer. Not, I, there's no wrong I, I answer. I can't believe that. Yeah. All right. Well, the reason the reason I only throw it out is because it's kind of like uh, he's almost like the Michael Jordan. He made only five films, and all five films either won the Oscar or was nominated for best Oscar. Wow. Which well, is like, say, he was yeah. Dog Day Afternoon, right? Dog Day Afternoon, both Godfather. That's what I most associate him with. Both Godfather films, mm-hmm. uh, the Conversation, and the Deer Hunter. Those were the five films he okay. made. Every well, one of them. I didn't see. I, I'm well aware of conversation and deer hunting, but I hate to tell you, I didn't see either one, but, uh, but I do remember dog day afternoon mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll say, I still can't believe it because I think there's somebody that I'm forgetting is very obvious and, and, and I, and I don't know, uh, um, you know, I yeah. can't tell you. So well, I can't that's think of one. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm going with your answer is yes. And that's the right that's answer. It. You win. <laughs> well, and, and Bob, here's an easy one. My father grew up in Boston lived and died the Celtics. I grew up in California, started to like the Lakers. And he would get on me every time I watched the Lakers and would say one name was the greatest player ever. And you know him, Bob Cousy. Of course. What was Cousy like for my dad that's in heaven somewhere? Well, my, well, first of all, Cousy, you know, is still the godfather Mm -hmm. of all point guards. He's point guard play, you know, it's that begins here, you know, like Art Tatum piano begins here. Okay. Um, I got to know him. I was 18. I was a freshman at BC. I am the student broadcaster for the radio station for the BC basketball games. So I get to interact routinely with Bob Cousy as a result. And we're friends to this day. Uh, He's 94, lives in Worcester, Mass. He's 100% good. And he's in a wheelchair mostly, but he's 100%. I'll take that trade off any day, 94. Sign me up right now. And um, just... Fun. Oh, he's a sly, sly sense of humor, uh, honorable guy. Um, you know, just I mean, he's just and very opinionated about certain things. Um, you know, and, and not politically. You know, he's a he was a very staunch uh, civil rights uh, guy, with, uh, supporter of his teammates, and that back in those days in the '60s. Uh, and um, 
he's just a wonderful man and and i'm privileged to know him and i'm thrilled to be able to say that i know him uh and uh yeah what can i say yeah and but i'm just very happy to know him and i'm he's he's going he's doing fine good and you can so look, I don't know what else I can tell you. No, that's good. No, no, that's but good. It's, that's good. it's funny because young people, they will see old videos yes. of Kuzi and they'll see the set shot and they'll go, what the heck is that? Because yeah. he's not and jumping. They don't understand yeah. how the game was played back then. And didn't J.J. Reddick well, say some things about as, him? As yeah. a one-hand set shooter myself, uh, you know, I, I, I can relate to it. And it's funny, like the one of my great questions, who, who took the last two-hand set shot in NBA history? That's a question. I think Ooh. I have an answer. But Oh, John Casale. <laughs> Adrian Smith, Odie Smith, oh. I think would uh, be the uh, last guy that took a two-hand set shot. Although, if you listen to uh, Russell's last game, 1960, uh, no, Red's last game mm. in 1966, mm. Game Seven against the Lakers, here the 195-93, and uh, uh, Sam Jones took one. Johnny Most, I can still hear his call because I have a record up for it. Is a foot two handed set down from 40 feet. And <laughs> nice. Hey, Bob, you mentioned quickly the uh, the 73 or uh, the 74 finals between the Bucks and the Lakers. What a great series mm -hmm. what that was. Bucks in, in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a couple of months, that they are on the cover, and we would love to have you back to talk more about that series in particular because this has been oh. just a slice of oh. heaven for us here mm -hmm. out in LA. Bob? I'm already plotting. Uh, um, in fact, I was doing I did, actually did an interview today on this uh, to, to commemorate that for the Boston Globe. Uh, wow. And it was also it, socially is one of my memorable, fun social events I ever covered too. But that, uh, but we, it, it was just, it was just something. Uh, it really was, and, and um, that be very happy to participate because I really have great fine memories of the 74 finals. Wonderful. Then we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us, Bob. Thank you. It was it's an awesome. honor. Great an job, honor. man. Great job. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your day. Thank you. You know, he mentioned there at the end that Kuzi's 94 and still sharp as a tack, mm -hmm. and he hopes he's going to be that way as well. He, and he showed no evidence no. there that he's not going to be because no. – I swear to God, he's like, oh, no, that was the 71 team, third yeah. quarter, blah, blah, blah. I but mean, he was remembering calls from Johnny Most from the 60s, 60s like right? the exact wording. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. We'll have him on when we do the, you know, 70 year. Right, you know, right. SIs. You know, I've seen Bob, I've read Bob. Yeah. Um, but just an engaging guy. And you can just feel his passion. Yeah. For basketball, especially back then, you yeah. know, I know the game has you changed, can. and and he That's... doesn't and he doesn't want to necessarily mm -hmm. say it's not as good or whatever. He just says it's changed, but when he talks about those Celtics teams, you can just feel yeah um, that he was feel felt so lucky to be a part of that. And he was talking about the Magic Bird rivalry too. And when I said to him that story on the golf course, how competitive they were, and though I didn't finish the thought that when Magic said compete against me in what and i said golf and then he was like oh yeah he'll compete with me in golf but not basketball so he was implying basically like right. i can still take him in basketball so that they're retired and those competitive juices are still yeah. there yeah it reminds me of like uh rocky and apollo creed exactly yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> ding uh, ding right yeah. Ding, yeah. Ding. You, yeah. You, you move good yeah. for an old man yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> speaking of boxing uh, that's the next story here on uh, the Past Our Prime podcast. It's called Jose Was Attacked by the Entire Zoo. And it is about a boxer, a middleweight champion at the time named Carlos Monzon, who, once again, another one of those guys that I think I might have remembered the name, but but it, 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 it didn't. I had to go look him up. Let's put it that way. And he's finding a um, he's fighting a guy in Paris, of all mm -hmm. places, named Jose Napolis and he beats him. Mm -hmm. He's a much bigger guy and 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 no big deal, right? Well, do you guys know much about this Carlos Monzon guy? He's I, he, I started reading didn't up. Didn't he right? become an actor like, and, you know, do some certain thing? I know he dated a lot of celebrities. Well, he you know, he defended he did. his title 14 times. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's right. thought of yeah, as right. one of the best pound-for-pound yeah. yeah. pound fighters yeah. of all time. He finishes with a record of 87-3 yeah. and three yeah. with nine draws, 59 knockouts. Yeah. I don't think he was ever um, 
knocked down. The most amazing story to me about Carlos Mazon was, so this fight is happening in 1974, mm-hmm. early 74. In 1973, he got shot in the leg by his wife. Right. Mm-hmm. And they did That's surgery right. to take the bullet out. And this tough guy, he's back in the ring, you know, defending his title. Right. Well, he was as a, he didn't leave, unfortunately, the fighting to the ring. He mm. was a serial domestic abuser. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was charged numerous times. His first wife, as Mark just mentioned, actually shot him in 1973. Yep. Surprisingly, they would later divorce. <laughs> really? <laughs> in 1979, he uh, married a woman by the name of Alicia Munoz. In 1988, while vacationing together, he pushed her off a second-store balcony and killed her. Yep. He was found guilty of homicide and given an 11-year prison sentence. And in 1995, while on a weekend furlough, he was in a car crash while returning mm-hmm. to jail and was killed instantly. He was 53 years old. So he was a beast in the ring. He was a beast outside the ring, apparently, well, as well. Who lives uh, by yeah. the sword, dies by but the you, sword. But you yeah. saw some of the pictures, and you'd see the women that he was with. They were wearing dark sunglasses that were really big yeah. because they were hiding the bruises. Yeah, more than likely. Yep. There was a, a a big article about skiing back then. And, and the only thing I took from it, because they talked about how the Shah of Iran was there, right, right. Pierre Trudeau of Canada, the King of Greece, um, some guy named Gustavo Taini is the best skier in the world. He's a three-time winner of the World Cup. Um, he has a big, a big weekend. And all I kept thinking about is, you know, back then, where have all the skiers gone? Like, we don't know the skiers no. anymore. Like, we used to know uh, Ingemar uh, Stenmark, Stenmark yeah. or uh, Phil and Steve Marr, yeah, right? Yeah. Franz Klammer. Yep. Um, but I I could not name you. Well, you know the female skiers. The female, more right? Yeah. Lin- Lindsay, Lindsay Vaughn. Yeah. And right now the the one is Michaela Schifrin, yeah. who, who's won ninety five World Cup wins more more than any American ever. But she's not a huge star the way that they were back in the day. They 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 used to be you know front and center more than just every four years. Well, remember they used to have the wide world of sports. And that was always that something was you had skiing. Kind of stuff, that's right? when you saw skiing, you would know the people from there. Well, yeah, the agony of defeat. That's know, right. That's right. Road. That's right. 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 But about that Gustavo, you said his last name really well. He retired at the age of 29. He says he likes mountains, forests, and animals. He sleeps a lot and never goes to parties. I thought, thought what an interesting, you know, sort of eclectic sort of guy. Sleeps a lot and doesn't go to parties. Yes. That's me. <laughs> now, if you just put the skiing in, that's we can okay. change you to That's the what, okay when you're old and decrepit that's when you're young, no. But he was 20-some years old, right. and you'd figure this is the time. But everyone's got a different thing. He's good at skiing, but hey, man, he likes to sleep. And they used to call him sexy. That's the next story up on the docket, and it's about a couple of horses that you may have heard of, <laughs> uh, Reaver Ridge and Secretariat. But the question is... How were they going to be as studs, basically? Mm. <laughs> and it's this long article about um, these conglomerates that were investing in, in these two horses. And they were really worried because, you know, their semen count was low and they weren't 100 percent fertile. And, you know, there's talking back then millions of dollars. But I can only read about so much horse sperm before I, well, you know. All I know is. What other show is talking about semen count today? Yeah, right? <laughs> My golly. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, with the horses, like you're hoping the, the, the pedigree will lead to another champion. But it's just like the son of some all-star athlete isn't necessarily going to be a good athlete. Or sometimes they have multiple kids. One kid's a great athlete and the other kid isn't. So, you know, it, it happens. Yeah. But he's still sired. Secretariat sired like I think 663 folds. I don't I mean. think of that. And I, all I keep thinking about is I would have been one of the guys that would have would have, for lack of a better word, pulled out of that. Um, We're not ability, going down that road, are we? That ability to buy. I'd be like, nope, I don't believe Secretariat's going to do anything 660 horses later. Yeah. And, you know, a few of them, you know, were, were big high stakes winners. Uh, Reva Ridge, same thing, I think 360 um, foals, 228 winners. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big business. It was a big business then, big business now. Lee Evans, an interesting story on a, on a track star, the weekly track story here in, in Sports Illustrated. Uh, two-time gold medalist at the 68 Games. He was an activist. Now, those 68 Games were famous for the uh, Black Power Movement when uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos made that famous 
Um, power fist, side. You know, like fist. Power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee Evans won, but he didn't do that. He 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 didn't necessarily stand at attention for the national anthem, but he didn't do what they did, and he was vilified for that. Called Uncle Tom by some. He he bowed his head, but that was about it. Evans said he runs track because I'm too much of an individual to do what others do. So he was he was like, look, I'm with you in spirit, but I'm going to do what I do. So I thought he was an interesting an interesting dude. He uh, while prepping for the 74 games, his brother Dayton went fishing and drowned. So a lot of tragedy in his life ended up dying in 2021 of a stroke at the age of 74 years old. Yes, yeah, very spiritual guy yoga and uh, yeah. stuff. But he had a good reason for not wanting to to follow uh, Carlos and Smith. He said he didn't want to take away from the winners or the the games themselves. I mean, he wanted to. He just felt it wasn't right, and he right. took a stand. But you're right; he was um, he was taken to the woodshed on that. Yeah. The divine right of queens. Now, I don't know if this was the first time America got to hear this name, but she was only 17 years old. Dorothy Hamill. Mm. Uh, wins the first of three straight U.S. skating championships. She won gold at Innsbruck in the Winter Olympics, which was in 76, I think. She retired right after that. But get this, she won her first U.S. Open championship with the help of the judges. She gave what they said was a rather listless performance. And the judges, instead of giving her like five threes or five fours, they gave her five eights and five nines. And one said, oh, that's because if we had given her five threes and five fours and she had still won, we would have set the tone for the Russians and the East Germans mm. when it became an international contest being like, well, the Americans gave her five threes and five fours. We'll give her now five. So basically they were cooking the books to give her higher mm. scores so that when she went and competed internationally, the, the, the thought was already, and it just shows you, man, that... The Olympic skating, it finally came to a to a peak, mm-hmm. you know, with the with that controversy, uh, uh, you know, twenty years later. But what a what a racket that was! I yeah. mean, the thing I always remember Dorothy Hamill is just short and sassy. Exactly, yeah, she, right? She, she yeah. was like she was yes. America's first sweetheart. Yep, because right. you know, in the seventy in the seventy six Olympics. But she was. I just like the fact I just got to at least mention this, I guess. Her first, her her coach at the time, or one of the ones that helped her win the figure skating championships, was uh, Peggy Fleming's old coach. Peggy Fleming was my first babysitter. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. She used to babysit us when we were kids. So what the heck you, did what, she do to you? When, when you caused trouble, <laughs> were you on thin ice with her? I was. I was. Wow, <laughs> wow. Skating on thin yeah, ice. Yeah, there we go. You know. Nice. But a boom. He's here all week, folks. <laughs> Mark Hoffman Mahoney, anytime. <laughs> Finally, uh, Arnold Palmer uh, at the Bob Hope uh, Desert Classic. He had won there five times. Now he was, you know, an older guy, but the crowd still, they they didn't, they they were there to see Arnie's army, you know, right, Bill? I'm just, I know there's just something about the article and I loved Arnold Palmer. I mean, as a golfer and the opportunity to see him. But the one thing that got me, and it doesn't have anything to do with golf, because I'm just saying how society's changed. It said he would go through the crowd and give women a lot of kisses. And I keep thinking nowadays we're in such a different society because remember that was, this, that was the same with, um, what was it? Um, not Wheel of Fortune, what was one? Richard, Richard Dawson. Dawson right? Yeah, he would do the same thing. And, yeah. and the soccer coach who just got like yes. in trouble because yes. he kissed. Uh, right. The Spanish, the, Spanish right. soccer coach, right? Yeah, because it says, it says, you know, one of the photos has Palmer lip locking with a, 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 a young, young lady. And I keep thinking at the time it seemed normal to me. Yeah, yeah, well, it's a whole different now. Yeah. You can't get away. But the thing about Arnold Palmer, to me, not just the, the golfing legend he was, but he transcended society because mm-hmm. name me one other golfer that has a drink named after him. Right? That's right. He That's created right. that, that he did. iced tea, tea lemonade, lemonade combination. Yeah. You know? I, to this day, still say, I'll have an Arnold Palmer light on the lemonade, you know? No, he was. You kept him in business, Mark. I ha- oh, yeah, I sure do. have. Mark, yeah. I forget you do that. Yeah. Hey, let's wrap it up with the For the Record. Mark, Bill, you got anything on, on, I, on uh, towards the end of the issue? I love Richard. What's his name? Sandalins, a 30-year-old Edmund to Dennis. And he talks yeah. about his relationship with his dog. So he had a black lab that won a Canadian championship. And he had turned down an offer of $12,000 for his dog, Sam. And he said, a quote, I could sell my wife for that, but not my dog. <laughs> yeah, she liked that. She really enjoyed that story. Here, here comes another one. 
So I guess he was in the doghouse that night. <laughs> That's a rough one, buddy. Yeah. Uh, no, I like the one with uh, Don Shula and Chris Everett. They lost a charity tennis match. And describing Don Shula, they described him as having all the moves of a dump truck. <laughs> yeah, the picture of him there, he doesn't look really comfortable. He doesn't. He doesn't look very comfortable hitting that tennis ball. No. No. Uh, ABA San Diego was in last place, but they won three in a row for the week behind coach Wilt Chamberlain. They would go 37 and 47 in the stilts only season as a coach Two hall of, uh, two legends in pro football mentioned or elected to the hall of fame this week, Lou gross and Dick, one of the greatest, uh, nicknames ever Dick night train lane. That's right. Who had 14 interceptions as a rookie 68 for his career still fourth all time in NFL history. So there you have it. Um, the February 18th, 1974 issue of sports illustrated, Bob Ryan. What a great guest. He was really happy that he, that he joined us next week. We go back to UCLA losing another basketball game and have the cover man on that issue of the February 25th, 1974 issue, Gerald Willett will be joining us. You may never have heard of Gerald Willett, but let me tell you one thing. You'll never forget him after you hear his interview with us next week. Just an amazing, amazing story. For lack of a better word, left the three of us in here shocked. Mm -hmm. So until then, Bill, Mark, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. This is Scott saying thanks for joining us for the Past Our Prime podcast. We'll see you next week.